thank you again for everybody's uh, willingness to, to wrestle with the technology and, um, you know, some 30 plus internet connections working well this morning. Um, I will, uh, great. I see everybody, mostly everybody's uh, muted themselves. That's super. And a couple of people have found that it's a beautiful day outside. So that's great too. Um, you know, we, we're fortunate to be involved in a community that's so large, even though I've been a member of RUMC for 20 years, I find there are guys I have never met before in my life, and I think they're new, which is naive on my part, and then I find out they've been there longer than me. So I was uh, a little surprised when um, about, what, five or six weeks ago now, um, Jimmy got on and he was the one doing the announcement to say which ministers were staying, which ministers were going, where were they going? I was like, how can there be somebody at the church in that kind of position of uh, intrigue, I'll call it intrigue, um, who I had never met before. And so I reached out to Jimmy and uh, gotten to know him a little bit over the last uh, two or three months <clears throat> as we've been talking about what is it like to speak at men's breakfast. And um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I guess I'll continue to look up to him because he's about a foot taller than me. And um, I, uh, I realized now he is a, this is his bio. So um, I got it off his law firm's page. And anytime you go to a, a lawyer's website and get their legal information, I think they send you a bill. I haven't gotten my bill yet. So I'm hoping I went to the public facing site. Um, but uh, you do pro uh, product liability law. And he has been a, uh, I, I can't wait to find out what this means, a G Georgia super lawyer uh, many, uh, many times. And I think for this group, what they would, might, many of them would find interesting is that you were general counsel for the Georgia State Golf Association. That's the sport where you chase the little white ball, right? <laughs> Sorry, poor attempt at humor this morning. And um, he has also been serving on the uh, Pastor Parish Relations Committee. Everybody normally says that is the PPRC. Um, so I said, Jimmy, please come and tell us about your story. I, I got a little bit to know him over the phone. I don't think we've ever actually met in person, but uh, he sat next to my wife at a uh, some kind of church meal event within the last two years. And she said he seemed like a fine upstanding man. So uh, with that recommendation, Jimmy, thank you so much for, uh, for being with us here this morning. Well, thanks, Eric, and um, I, I, at least I've got your wife fooled, so uh, um, uh, I, um, guys, let's just start with a word of prayer, if we could. Um, God, we thank, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for uh, your son, Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity we have, for the technology where we can gather. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would just uh, bless this time uh, fellowship this morning. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. The video at the bottom. Yeah. I've got everyone's muted now. Yep, I'll try and find that. There we go. Thank you so much, Bob. All right. Okay. Um, I'll, um, uh, Eric had asked me um, to um, talk about this uh, concept of Methodist itinerancy um, and also just a little bit about my journey at RUMC. Um, I have not participated in the men's uh, breakfast before. <clears throat> I have uh, been in a Bible study that we meet in uh, weekly in the morning uh, for 20 something years. I traveled a fairly good bit before the COVID. Um, and so I was unaware until I looked at uh, last month's 
and, and realize that there are people on this that attend this that know more about the Methodist Church than I'll know, and, and they've forgotten more than I'll ever know, and uh, people who've been at the church a lot longer than I have. So uh, I don't know that I have a whole lot to say to anybody that will be worth getting up in the morning for, but uh, I'll try to uh, add a couple things. Um, I went to college at, uh, I, grew, I grew up Presbyterian, and I went to college at uh, Mercer down in Macon, and I would walk across the street to the little Methodist church there. Um, sometimes we'd go to the Methodist church downtown. Um, in law school, I was on the national and state trial practice team, and uh, we'd try uh, cases against other schools in competition. And the professor uh, approached me. I was interviewing my third year in Atlanta and Savannah and places like that. I just knew I wanted to get out of Macon. That was my only goal, and get in the courtroom. Um, and so she approached me and said, there's, a, there's this famous lawyer in a place called Metter, Georgia, that wants somebody can go in the courtroom the first day and I'd like, and he wants me to send you down to interview and I'd like you to go down and talk to him. And I, you know, in those days, you know, I was going to Atlanta or Savannah, you know, you would, you would go to a law firm, you would interview with three people for five or 10 minutes. They liked you, you, you got a second interview a week or so later and you'd interview maybe three or four more people. And then you'd come back for the third interview and maybe they'd take you to lunch and make you an offer. Um, so I go to see this guy in Metter, Georgia, and it was a four-hour interview. Uh, never experienced anything like it. And at the end, he says, uh, okay. Um, he said, I, I want to hire you. I want you to come work for me. Um, he said, I'll put you in the courtroom the first day. I'll teach you how to fly. You had a small plane. He said, I'll pay you country club dues. There's a little nine-hole course there. Um, and um, he said, I, I won't pay what the Atlanta salary is paying, but tell me the top salary in Savannah, and I'll match it. I said, where do I sign? So I went to Metter, Georgia. And, um, you know, I grew up in Atlanta and lived in Atlanta all my life. And so it was a very unique thing to be in the country. I, I mean, I loved to hunt and fish and play golf and softball, basketball, stuff like that. So it was a great place for a single guy until it got dark and sidewalks rolled up. And, you know, you would think that a small town is friendly, and I guess it is, but everybody my age was married. and All the women either were married or they – uh, left town and never came back. So um, I don't know whether the best decision was going there or leaving there, but I got a lot of experience. But um, I, I rented a house across the street from the jail. And uh, it was like Andy Griffith. I mean, there was a, um, the sheriff came up to me like the first week I was there and said, you know, you need your grass cut and, um, and your car wash. So you give me $5 a week and I'll take care of it. I didn't know what he meant, and I talked to my boss, and he said, oh, yeah, you need to do it. He said, the, the inmates, they, they need that money. Mm. So uh, sure enough, uh, I give the sheriff $5 a week, and sometimes I'd come home, and one of the inmates is out cutting my grass, and another guy's out washing my car, and I thought it was pretty cool. But uh, so there was a Methodist church two blocks away. I could walk to it. So I started to go there, and the minister was a great guy, um, a lot of fun. Um, we fished together, really neat guy. Um, he had cancer, uh, and beat it. Um, and I go to church one morning and he's not there. And this person who is either a bishop or a district superintendent, I can't remember now which one it was, is saying that he's been moved and he's not coming back. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, how could that happen? Um, you know, I, you know, I thought, I thought he was the minister of this church. So that was my first experience with, uh, how, kind of how the Methodist system worked. 
So I uh, moved back to Atlanta after a year and a half, um, uh, met my wife, uh, we got engaged and we started visiting churches and we went to Roswell, 1985. Uh, and so uh, Malone's a minister and we, you know, it's up in the what's now chapel and, and we walk outside and some of you may have heard the story and so you know in those days you shake the preacher's hand and so you know we said we're visiting for the first time uh and i asked if he had a basketball team and he said absolutely absolutely we do he said i don't know when they meet but uh you can call the church but absolutely we have a basketball team so we you know he was a good preacher and uh, we had a good time and nice church so we went back the next week and he starts a sermon and he's talking about service or something. And he says, and oh, by the way, last week there was a guy about 6'10 that was visiting for the first time. And he asked me if we had a basketball team. He said, I told him we did. He said, I had no idea if we did or didn't, but I knew we were going to. So I wasn't lying when I said that we did. <laughs> and so he said, uh, you know, in case you're out there, we do have a basketball team. It already exists. We don't have to form one. And it meets on Monday night, 630. So I show up Monday night, um, I change my clothes, the fellowship hall down, it's got carpet and the basketball goes are down, no, no chairs or anything. Three or four basketballs laying in the middle of the floor and nobody's there. So I'm looking around, I shoot a little while and nobody's there. It actually met at seven. Um, so I get ready to leave and I start to walk out the door and this guy walks in and I was a Kappa Sig at Mercer. And um, many of you know him, this guy named Dan Day. So he walks in, he's got Kappa Sig sweats on. Uh, he introduces himself, we start talking, and then some other guys start coming in. We have a lot of fun playing basketball. Dan and Catherine uh, had just recently been married. Um, they invited us to the Discovery Sunday School class, which met across the street, what used to be an elementary school, now it's the alternative school, and we met in the kindergarten room. So the chairs were about, you know, six inches off the ground. Um, for a long-legged guy like me, it was kind of crazy, but... Uh, so we got active in, in Discovery and um, uh, started getting active in the church at that point in time. We joined in 1987. Um, and then I got on various committees and finance and stewardship and things. And then Dan and I chaired stewardship together, I think it was 1990. And then I uh, started doing different things, um, uh, board of stewards. And then I was vice chair of the board of stewards. And I don't know if any of you on the call we're here at the time or remember the incident, but uh, it's a miracle and it shows forgiveness. Um, so I was uh, the vice chair of board of stewards and I had to conduct the meeting because the chairman was not there. And we had moved into the new building. Um, we were in the choir room, you know, a hundred and something people and it's supposed to start about seven and everybody's just talking, blah, 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 lots of noise in the room. And I'm trying to get everybody's attention so we can start and there's this little wooden box block on the table. And I can't find the gavel, but I had a uh, college ring. So I turned it over and I just bam, 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 three times pretty hard. And I had no idea it was a hearing impaired device. And so there were three of the elderly women in the church. They must've been in the eighties. They were like dolphins. They came straight up out of their chairs in the air, twisted and turned, started screaming. I mean, I was, I was, I didn't know, I thought I'd been shot. I didn't know what was going on. I'm looking around and uh, Beverly Godown was uh, Malone's uh, assistant at the time. And she grabbed my hand and she said, that's the hearing impaired device. So uh, I apologize and I apologize to the ladies and I guess they can hear now, um, but I didn't get run out of the church. So I, I was still there. Um, uh, 
got on board of trustees and um, then I've taught um, second grade up to sixth grade kids Sunday school, taught some adult Sunday school. I really enjoy doing that. Um, yeah, I've been on a lot of committees and different small things for, for different projects in the church over the years since uh, we started going in 1985 and, and so forth. Um, and then a couple of times during when Malone was there, I was on the, what was at the time, the past parish relations. And it was, it used to be two committees. You had past par pastor parish relations and then lay personnel. And I was on pastor parish relations. There was a guy named Jerry Dawes. Some of you may remember him. Uh, he was a friend. He was in the Sunday school class and he was on. And so when I was asked to be on it, he told me, he said, um, he said, I'll tell you before you go to your first meeting, uh, being on PPR is like uh, watch, watching sausage being made. Uh, he said, um, you know, ministers are human like everybody else, and you're going to hear a lot of confidential stuff, but you're also going to hear, you know, you know, some stuff that's not pleasant. And so over the course of a number of years, um, you know, fortunately at, at Roswell, there have been some blips, but, um, but it's been a really neat experience um, to work uh, alongside the ministers and to help uh, build them up and edify them and, and help in some way. Um, so um, I was on it a couple of different three-year periods during Malone's time and then um, uh, uh, in the transition between Malone and Mike coming. And Mike um, was different than Malone. Um, Mike, Malone believed that if, if, you know, you were good on a committee, then you were there for life. You know, he wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, he knew who was there and, and, and had some experience. Mike, uh, felt like there was some continuity was important, but he also thought it was very important to get new people involved and to keep people from being burned out. So I rotated off and then he asked me to come back on. Um, and then the chair pastor Paris relations. Um, uh, and then it was one of those years that he was having a difficult time. And I, uh, uh chaired it a second time of uh, two years in a row, uh, for Mike and a uh, little golf story on the side is, um, as I uh, finished and rotated off, um, he wanted to say thank you, um, and he gave me a putter. And he also said, you know, since this is church-related, I have to give you a Bible. And so he gave me Dave Pelt's putting Bible. And um, if any of you know Dave Pelt's or read him, he is literally a, a rocket scientist. And, and so I, it's, a, it's bigger than any Bible. I mean, that thing is like a Webster encyclopedia. I mean, it... it it is huge. Uh, and I studied that book and I read that book and I was a good putter. I thought in my mind until I read that and, and it messed me up probably for 15 years. I mean, it, it, it was, um, I mean, maybe it's good for some people, but it was, I became so mechanical trying to do all this stuff that I just, uh, um, it didn't really work well for me. Um, but, uh, but I still haven't, I go back to it from time to time. Um, but it was, uh, it was a good time, uh, with Mike and, um, I enjoyed the time, um, with him. Uh, let me clean this up. Um, but, um, this thing popped off here just a minute. Am I still on here? I guess. Yep. We can see you and hear you just fine. Okay, good. Um, well, um, I don't understand what this is good. We're good. Um, we, um, uh, so, um, during the course of being on there two years, uh, two different times with Malone, 
uh, five years during Mike's tenure, and then also the transition Mike to Tom. Um, I've seen a lot of ministers come and go, and I've read a lot about this idea of itinerancy. Um, and so, um, kind of talk to you a little bit of, about that. Um, you know, um, John Wesley, obviously the founder of the Methodist Church, he preached over 40,000 sermons. And he preached them in fields, in barns, um, all over in town, cities. I mean, he traveled extensively. So that's how Methodism got started. Um, um, you know, he was asked one time and he said about his parish and he said, the world is my parish. And so that was his concept of the Methodist minister. Um, and then comes along, uh, I, I, I got a quote for you. In 1950, excuse me, in 1756, he wrote this letter. We have found by long and consistent experience that a frequent exchange of preachers is best. This preacher has one talent, that another. No one whom I ever yet knew has all the talents for beginning, continuing, and perfecting the work of grace in an entire congregation. And so that was his view of it. Uh, he believed a preacher was, um, who moved from place to place was going to be more effective than somebody who was comfortable, who was just set, um, and, um, and who, you know, the congregation may, you know, get tired of hearing the same old thing or the same old person. So he felt like preachers ought to be moved. Um, and then along comes Francis Asbury, um, who was one of his assistants. Many of you may know a lot more about him, certainly than I do, but at, at 22, he was a traveling preacher and assistant to Wesley. Um, and in 1771, he agreed to come to the New World. Uh, so he comes over um, and um, he gets to, the, to what is now the United States. He preaches 25 different places in the first year. Um, and then the Revolutionary War kind of gets going, um, and he, I don't want to get into the politics of all that stuff, but he tries to maintain a neutral stance. Um, and then in 1784, he's still here, and he and Thomas Coke are appointed as co-superintendents um, or, or bishops, and I'll talk about bishops in a minute. So he established a number of societies um, of the Methodist Church. I think 700 preachers he ordained in his time. Um, and until Asbury died, he would travel an average of seven of 6,000 miles every year, preaching, teaching, conferences, so forth. So you've got that concept of Wesley traveling everywhere. You've got the concept of, uh, of Asbury's experience as the, one of the first bishops in the United States. Um, so, um, he would, he would ordain these preachers and he would give them an area and there would be maybe half a state or territory and they would stay there three or four months and then he would move them to another area and new, move somebody new into that area so that that entire itinerant preacher, if you will, uh, the circuit rider was how Methodism developed in the United States. Um, they, they rode that circuit. Uh, Coke and Asbury were the first quote-unquote bishops, and um, I didn't realize this till I started reading about it, but bishop comes from the New Testament Greek episkopos, which means the one who can see the whole picture. Um, I thought that was interesting, and it helps understand part of this itinerancy question. So that's the background. Um, 
the the question uh, you know if you sit there and you think about it uh from a standpoint of a congregation well we have a new minister um uh or we want a new we want this we think what is best for us uh the minister in themselves may say hey what is best for me and my family i want to go where you know i think it's best what's best for me and from the beginning that question is is specifically not the question to ask it's not what is best for me uh from a methodist standpoint when uh, the the denomination believes what is best for for the methodist uh community the methodist um connection overall and so that's what drives these appointments and, and these decisions um and then the the methodist minister um it, you know we have two kinds we have deacons and elders and um if you're an elder you take a unique vow you take a vow to uh uh go where sent and, and that's pretty unique um of any denomination um the education requirements between elders and deacons are the same um some deacons i understand don't have to have as many like uh business organization type classes that that uh elders do but the educational requirement from a biblical perspective and and a seminary perspective are the same um but there are two different types of of ordination um when an elder is ordained they're ordained to a ministry of word sacrament order and service um and they take the vow to go where sent a deacon is ordained to a ministry of word service compassion and justice um, they're called to a ministry that brings the church into the world and the world into the church um, but they don't take a vow to go where sent and they can also cross lines uh, between the conference where they hold their membership and that's why you know we want to go out and find for example uh, a, a, a deacon as a youth minister or a deacon as a, a music minister or some unique area education um, we can go to texas or we can go anywhere we want to go and we can hire a deacon uh, they're an ordained clergy person they can come outside their the conferences they're a member of uh, and, and we can do that with inside the church and the bishop doesn't really have a say so in it nor does the district superintendent from an elder's perspective though that's different um you know an elder goes where served and so the bishop makes that appointment they have the same functions uh, they teach they preach pastoral care weddings funeral that kind of stuff but but a deacon can never be a senior minister of a church um and so the difference is, is as you're going through is do you want to be moved and take the commitment in the place to go where sent or do you want to have a little more control um technically uh a deacon is not supposed to administer the sacraments unless they're doing it under the direction of a, uh, an elder or senior minister but um and, and so that's typically what's done in in some churches um, um the uh, the appointment process um you're appointed uh, that that's the action of the bishop in in determining that someone's going to go someplace um uh, i don't know how many of you know it but the appointments are always only for one year um and uh, so you know alone was here a lot of years and every single year he had to be reappointed and same thing with tom now and with mike i mean every every elder has to be reappointed every year 
uh, or appointed every year and you know it's reappointed to the local church that they're in or or appointed to a new church um, um, the bishop um, the process is is not an, an easy one it, it's a process that it takes almost a year probably um, the the bishop takes into consideration the uh, needs as expressed by the local congregation through the PPR or Staff Parish Relations Committee. Um, the bishop uh, gets a council of district superintendents with them and, uh, and they make these decisions on whether to reappoint a particular elder uh, minister to a local congregation that they're in or to move them to a different one. Um, in our church, um, but, but I'll tell you, they also, um, you know, it, Roswell is unique, as you all know. We have incredible programs. Uh, we have a huge lay staff. We have huge clergy staff. Um, you know, uh, we have, you know, a lot of people. Uh, we have a huge campus. It, it, it'd be very difficult for a uh, four-year person who's only been an associate at a 40-person church, you know, in the country to come over and be the CEO of this kind of an organization. Uh, so the bishop understands that. Uh, and, and when Mike was being uh, appointed to uh, district superintendent uh, position and we knew we were going to have a transition, um, the bishop asked uh, PPR, okay, what is it that you want in a minister? What are you looking for? Um, and what do you think you need? So as a committee, we talked about it, thought about it, prayed about it, and provided information. But the bishop made it clear to us that we don't get to choose. We can't go out and hire somebody. We can't go visit different churches and listen to preachers and say, we want that one. Um, and so the bishop makes those appointments the way the bishop feels is the best for, the, for Methodism uh, and, and for the Methodist Church and the Methodist Connection overall, taking into consideration not only the minister that's going to be moved there, but also the, um, uh, the congregation itself. Um, so um, that's how that done. To, you know, we have uh, Tom, Jeff, and Joe as ordained elders. Uh, Marion is an ordained elder as well. Uh, she, though, is in the uh, Kentucky or North Kentucky Conference. She's here kind of with permission of that bishop and our bishop, and but she's technically part-time. Um, and um, uh, Melissa set for, she was a deacon, she set for ordination in January and is now uh, an elder. Um, and then you have Nancy and Michael Cromwell who are deacons. Um, now there's a debate, uh, I'll tell you real quick, there's a debate um, as to whether that's a proper system uh, in today's day and age. Um, I, I don't have a comment necessarily, but I'll tell you the, 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 some of the arguments for the yeses and the noes. Um, on the yes side, it allows um, a minister to preach the word without fear or concern um, because they are responsible to the DS and the bishop. And even though they're technically responsible to the local church and run the local church, the church can't hire them or fire them. Um, so they can just... Uh, you know, teach the way they want to teach um, and preach the way they want to preach. Um, um, it, it um, I think very importantly, um, maybe not so hopefully in today's day and age, but uh, probably 15, 20 years ago, perhaps even, um, if there's sexism, if there's racism, uh, if there's any other ism that's prevalent in a particular congregation, um, the fact that the bishop makes the appointment of the minister, uh, that ensures that 
that sentiment of that local congregation has no influence on who's going to uh, be their leader and no influence on who's what that person's going to preach to them because uh, it comes from the bishop. Um, it, it helps if you don't know whether or not your senior minister is going to be there next year or not. And that's technically true across the board. Um, it helps encourage the local church to get lay leaders involved and to increase the lay um, ministry um, and develop the lay leader. And, uh, ministry. It also helps uh, local congregation hopefully put their trust in God and not on any particular individual. Because all of you know there's been dynamic, charismatic preachers who've led congregations down the wrong path. Um, and um, so um, it also allows the bishop who, going back to that phrase or, or that meaning of what a bishop is, is he who sees the entire picture. It allows somebody who who knows what's going on over here and knows what's going on over here and and in the Methodist commitment and the congregations and the community collectively, it allows that person when the individual churches don't know what's going on next door to, 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 to say, well, in this particular area, we need somebody with these gifts and graces and the uh, Christianity can flourish, the church can flourish over here. Um, I'm going to move this person here. And, and I think Joe's an example of that. Joe is, uh, as many of you know, is an excellent teacher and an excellent preacher. And he's got unique gifts and graces. And the, the church there he's going to, and, and it's technically Marietta, but it's really it's, it's right at 92 uh, towards Woodstock. It's a fertile field and area up there. And I think that uh, it's going to be a great place. And Joe's going to um, do incredibly well there. Um, so uh, the contrary view, though, is that uh, this is an antiquated system. Uh, you know, all these ministers who rode the circuit back in the horse and buggy days were single men. Um, it doesn't work if you're married. It doesn't work if you have a family. Uh, it doesn't work if your spouse works. It doesn't work if you're a female and your husband works. Um, you know, that you're going to, you know, you make a commitment and you may be jerked up and moved you know, a year, two, three years down the road, five years down the road, you may be going to Augusta from Atlanta or from, you know, someplace else. You you, you, you can just be moved around. Um, so it's antiquated. Um, you know, in today's day and age, you know, cars, you can, you know, I don't know about many of you probably drive and I pass a number of churches to get to Roswell every single Sunday morning that I go. Um, there are a lot more churches and there are Methodist churches that are closer to my house than Roswell. Um, and so I could go to a lot of different churches and, and there's an ease of transportation with our vehicles. Um, and in, in that information age and in this age of, of the automobile, uh, the thought process is that when a new person comes on in a congregation, um, it usually takes three to five years for the entire congregation to get to know that minister, to trust that minister, to get behind that minister, and then for the change um, that that congregation may need to have implemented either in the community or in the congregation to take place. And, and so, you know, if, if they're going to be moved every couple of years or, um, uh, you know, before everybody gets to know it, the, the contrary view is that this is an antiquated system because it, in today's day and age, you need three to five years to get to know a minister and, and to, uh, uh, to help. And, and also there's a thought process that, you know, if, 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 some talented person is coming into the ministry um, and really is 
has skills and graces to to be a senior minister um, and yet they don't want to take the vow to go where sent um, they're called a ministry but they want to have uh, more say with their family or with their spouse and where they go that they may not be an elder and instead just be a deacon so so that's a, another reason why uh, there's a contrary view uh, I don't know what's going to happen uh, I don't make the rules and so uh, um, and uh, I don't uh, I told uh, I told Mike and I also told Tom um, when I agreed to serve um, on the PPR that uh, um, I, I want I'll do it for the for people I'll do it. Uh, I'm, I'm happy and I enjoy serving and I, and I want to serve and I look at it as my responsibility to serve the people of Roswell and the minister of Roswell, but not the institution or the, or the entity, um, whether it's Methodist church overall. I mean, but uh, so the way I look at it is, is our ministry is to each other, um, both as a family here and, uh, and in the connection. And so um, that's where we are. So we've got a, um, Got some people on the phone I know that are on the call that are on the uh, SPRC. It was combined, as I mentioned, it was lay personnel and then it was uh, past parish relations. And then probably um, just before Mike left, um, the idea was to combine the two. Instead of two different committees, we have one. So it was co-chaired by Alan Kennedy and Linda Layton. Linda was the chair of the lay personnel and, and Alan was the chair of PPR. And the, so it's now the SPRC, and our committee is responsible for not only the lay staff, paid lay staff, but also the the, the clergy. Um, so uh, under the, you know we we're a committee that's established by the uh, discipline, and the discipline has certain requirements. Uh, but the bottom line of what we're supposed to do is. Um, we provide advice to the ministers, we encourage the ministers, we support the ministers um, primarily, and then also assist in the um, kind of day-to-day, -day, I guess you would call it, in our church, we don't have to do it. We've got a, a CEO and we've got a church business administrator, but uh, we assist from the standpoint of, from a lay personnel or a staff, uh, lay staff standpoint in and some personnel decisions and, and things like that. But um, so that's it. So um, um, about six years ago, seven years ago, uh, my daughter, my youngest child, my other two had gone off and, and my youngest child was uh, 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 about to go to college and I was asked to be general counsel of the Georgia State Golf Association. And uh, you know, I, I actually knew, uh, apparently my name had come up like two or three different sources or ways, and I knew the incoming president, um, and I knew the former general counsel had gone to law school with him, and I knew somebody who had been the president previously, uh, had litigated uh, with people in their firm. And uh, so um, I talked to the general counsel, and he said, ah, you know, a couple hours a month, you'll look at some finances, records i mean it's not a big deal maybe you look at a uh, you know television contract or something but you know it's not a big deal it's 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 you know it's it's fine and you know you can go you know tell somebody that you're general counsel and you can play golf you know they i go to callaway and they don't charge me when i play down there or something like that so i said well maybe it's not a bad deal i tell you it's it's been uh rewarding um uh but it's been a lot of work um it's a volunteer position and and uh um, so this is my sixth 
or seventh year doing it. Um, uh, and and I keep trying to get out. But um, um, as many of you may know who are golfers or who follow GSGA, um, you know, they, they redid Bobby Jones down there and they're building golf house. Um, and so the GSGA's offices are going to be there. Um, and uh, the Georgia State Golf Hall of Fame is going to be there. Um, and uh, I worked on a, 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 some documents and some contracts with the state about the Hall of Fame and, and about the GSGA's responsibility. Technically, it's a, a responsibility of the state agency, but uh, the GSGA is responsible for it for about 50 years now. And so uh, we're, it's, if you haven't been down to Bobby Jones, I mean, the building's not complete. It should be complete before the year's over, but, uh, but the Hall of Fame is going to be, have a lot of virtual stuff. And so you'll be able to, to go around um, and, and, and learn a lot about golf in Georgia and Bobby Jones and a lot of other people. So uh, it, it, it's kind of a neat thing. And so that's about it. Uh, you make a mistake, Eric, when you give a lawyer a microphone. You know, I charge by the minute. By the way, you have to get a bill if you went to the web page. So. <laughs> well, Jimmy, you, you had me when you talked about your first uh, job and they were going to get you a pilot's license. So I was – you had me tuned for the, for the entire time. I, the one thing I hate about Zoom is when we're all muted, you don't get to hear the chuckles. And um, so it's, uh, it's, it's <clears throat> delightful to get to, to know somebody under these circumstances you know, the, um, it, this is a role in a church that affects a lot of what we hear and get said for all the years those ministers are pastors at our church. Um, have you found in, in, in serving, I didn't realize how off long you had been involved in that process. You, you're sort of the elder statesman of, the, of, of that process. How has that impacted your faith? I mean, it's the the implications of this are significant both in their families and in the entire church. Um, it's probably an interesting question. Um, I, um, I think, um, I don't know whether it was because of what Jerry Dawes told me initially or, uh, whether it's just experiential. Um, you know, when I was a younger man, I, um, I would attend church and, and the minister is on this pedestal. Um, and you know, they have a black robe, just like, uh, as a lawyer, you look up and you see a judge has got this black robe and there's a certain deference there and you have certain preconceived notions about that person. Well, as a lawyer, um, I gotta be careful. I understand this is being recorded as a lawyer. Um, you know, you see a lot of judges who aren't exactly, um, knowledgeable in certain areas and you know may just no have no experience in the kind of case you have or something um and you don't necessarily have to have any type of um, um, superior qualifications to be either appointed or be elected in, in georgia to be a judge i mean we have a fantastic judicial system um but uh but i was surprised as a lawyer because you 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 study the cases and you read the cases written by these great supreme court justices and these very learned people and and realize that judges are human just like everybody else. And it's the same thing, I think, with ministers. I think that that's one of the things that, that I've come to know is, is that uh, I have deference and respect for ministers. I think that their calling is, uh, I couldn't do it. Um, I'm amazed by it. Um, and um, uh, I'm encouraged by my time that I spend with, with ministers on one-on-one. -on -one, but um, 
they're they're human beings just like the rest of us. They have, um, you know, issues just like the rest of us. And um, I think that that's you know has kind of helped me as I you know I go back and and I look at David in the Bible and I, and I look at you know here's a guy that was an adulterer and a murderer and yeah, he was a man after God's own heart. And I say, you know, if if uh, if if that person you know can do it, then I can do it. And so um, um, I think it just it encourages me um, to kind of step alongside the ministers when I have an opportunity and, um, and just to share with them what I'm going through and to hear from them what they're going through and to pray for them. And, uh, and so, um, you know, from, from my standpoint, I, you know, it helps uh, me uh, feel like I'm participating in, in edification of other believers. Well, thank you so much for your service and being willing to, you know, come before us this morning um, and uh, share a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes. And the behind the scenes is, you know, always going to impact us in one way, shape or form. Um, the news of late has been pretty significant. I'm, I'm mindful of our time and um, I, I'd ask Jeff to come and, and if he was uh, available this morning. I know he's got a big day today. Um, and before we do prayer sort of at the prayer concerns at the end, Jeff, would you mind, you know, helping us a little bit relate to what's been going on in, uh, in the news? Sure. Thanks, Eric. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I wonder what uh, uh, people's capacity is. Uh, you know, we, sp we started this year uh, with the whole idea around general conference coming up uh, and the Methodist church and the division that that has caused within the Methodist church. Uh, um, you know, uh, many of y'all are in Sunday school classes and, uh, and other groups where that was the topic of discussion. Uh, you had, uh, opportunity to learn what both sides and there was a lot of anxiety over what was going to happen to the Methodist church and a lot of, uh, frustration, a lot of, uh, anger, a lot of, uh, churning going on. And then, uh, uh, beginning of February, I guess, somewhere in there, we started dealing with the whole pandemic and the general conference issues seemed to go on the back page. And uh, we had a whole new uh, thing to, to worry about uh, and think about and wonder what's going to happen and what's going to happen to us and what's going to happen to the church. And, um, and then over the last couple of weeks with the event down in uh, uh, South Georgia, um, with the shooting of the, the, the man there. And then now with the, the George Floyd thing and, and uh, uh, some of the other events that have taken place, we, we find that, uh, gosh, the uh, pandemic is a secondary story, which is incredible to think of. Uh, uh, and so, um, uh, you know, the, the challenge for us is, uh, what seems to be different right now? Uh, what, why has this gotten so much traction? Um, why are there protests uh, day and night? Um, and, and where is this headed? Where is it going? Um, what needs to be done? 
uh, why does why do events like this keep happening? Uh, why can't that be fixed? Um, uh, I think from time to time we get lulled into the belief that everything's fine and everybody's good and uh, things like this help us recognize that there's a, a, a frustration level uh, that cuts across uh, so many different uh, areas. So um, I was interested in Jimmy's description of the deacon uh, as uh, part of their job description uh, being uh, about justice and how to take the church into the world uh, and bring the world into the church. And so, uh, and then with the appointive system and the connectional system that the Methodist Church has, um, you know, my goodness, uh, this is an issue uh, uh, the racial uh, equality and, and tension. Um, uh, you know, Jimmy was talking about the bishop, and one of the challenges is uh, where communities are uh, are changing. Uh, maybe there was a strong white church that now is in a predominantly black community, and how do you make that change? And uh, or the other way around, uh, do we do cross-racial appointments? Would, would that be helpful? You know, would having a, 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 a minister of color uh, at the church help us identify issues and themes and things? Would that make some of the discussions better, worse? Um, uh, I'm not sure. So, you know, what is, uh, in a predominantly white congregation like Roswell, with a lot, a lot of privilege, uh, where, what, what are some things that, that we might could be doing? Uh, what are, what's our response? What's the way that we should be addressing this? What should we be praying for? Um, what can uh, our church do? How can we step into this? Uh, unrest? Uh, and what about the United Methodist Church? How do we work with other churches that may be more on the, you know, boots on the ground right in the middle of some of the things that are uh, taking place? Um, uh, we do a lot of mission work uh, in various parts of the world and, and, uh, um, uh, and even in the city of Atlanta. So, you know, is uh, sending some food and some goodwill and uh, some money the extent of our responsibility, or uh, does it go deeper than that? I think that, um, you know, there's a, 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 a great discussion that's happening uh, on all kinds of different levels. And, uh, each of us looking around this morning are in uh, different places of, of influence and connection and uh, people we know, people we work with. And uh, um, I think paying attention to that and, and being mindful of that, being mindful of, of uh, where, where we are in the midst of this and, and what we may need to learn. Uh, and areas that we may need to, to grow uh, and, and address this, uh, I think is, is certainly a, a challenge. Uh, 
and so uh, I think it's uh, um, we don't have any sort of formal uh, response or activity or ask uh, going on right now uh, at the church, but I think that all of us are impacted by this in, in different ways. Um, and it certainly needs our attention and our prayers um, and, uh, and our focus uh, to recognize that uh, some things are broken uh, and, uh, and have been for a long time. And uh, what do we need to do to be a part of moving things forward and, and not be a part of uh, tearing things apart? Well, Jeff, I know in a, you know, times like this, when we look at our own culture, it, it's sometimes hard to see it. Um, during uh, GIC, uh, window, um, the Free Burma Rangers movie was premiered yeah. at, at Nationwide. Um, I, I went to a showing of that, and at the end, there is a real time of focus. Um, it is now available on Prime Video. If you have not seen that, it puts a perspective on social issues that is not in your face in a controversial, make you embarrassed kind of way. It draws you into the life, to that family's life. I'd really suggest that as something that if you've not watched that with your family, I've been trying to watch it with my kids. My dad was a Presbyterian minister and, you know, we didn't grow up with the Methodist tradition, but I got to know a lot of missionaries. And when you see what other people's lives look like compared to ours, it gives you a great deal of patience and acceptance on you know what the way we perceive things it's funny how you have to look at it from another point of view sometimes to be able to see what matters yeah. um you know i really want to thank you know jimmy here for coming this morning and giving us a little insight on how we get people like jeff into our our life right our ministers to most of us show up and uh, you know most of us get to know them and when they leave we're like but i just got to know that one and so we've experienced the, the angst of, of that. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for a community where even though the ministers might move around, many of us get to stick around and get to know each other over long periods of time. Um, we we uh, have run a little, we're running long today, and I'm not going to break us out into breakout sessions. I promise in July we'll probably do that because I know many of you, if you're, if you're involved in a Sunday school class or a small group, hopefully you're getting this kind of engagement on a regular basis. If you're not, if you're not in a Sunday school class or a small group, please reach out to either Jeff or I. We want to make certain that it's, we're making it convenient for guys to get together and talk, you know, and, and to talk about the things that are really going on. They're their news, their jobs, their health. There's so much at play and we miss each other not being on campus and you miss bumping into somebody and having that conversation you have to be deliberate right now. So, you know, I want to give thanks. I was going to ask either Jeff or, or Jimmy to uh, close us in prayer and, you know, set us off on the right note for the rest of the day. Um, hey, Eric. Yes, sir. Yeah. Rusty. I, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I know we're a little late, but I, I just would love to make, uh, and I know it's a, a wild subject, but I want to make just a comment on what Jeff said, because he said, what can we do? Um, you know, most of the guys on this, you guys know, and I have a biracial grandson. What you don't know is, is that I've been involved with some black leaders in Atlanta 
um, uh, a couple that are authors. They mentor black pastors. One's a all pro, ex all pro football player at Fellowship, and uh, it's given a, a unique opportunity. And unfortunately, my number came up for teaching the Bereans this coming Sunday. So uh, you know, it will be my opportunity to to lose friends. I think uh, to talk about this, I. Uh, I just want to mention that there are just a couple of things we can absolutely do. The first one is admit, and here's what we need to admit, because it was a perfect day. Jimmy's done a great job leading us on the Methodist Church, but admit that the white evangelical church has largely been silent for 75 years on this subject. We have not heard sermons on it. We have not done, we have global missions and we don't address this area. Uh, so we have been quiet, and omission is a sin in this type of area. Uh, the second thing, and it's the simplest thing, it's the reason I wanted to speak, the simplest thing, you can go on Google, there are a hundred documents on how to do this, is just listen. I do not have, I have a lot of adult friends that are black, I, and they're in our church. Uh, many of y'all know Mitchell. I would ask you how many of you know his story, uh, and uh, not his not his stand up in front of the group story, but his story. I do not know a black adult that has not been an obvious victim of racism. I don't know one. So the first thing that is asked by my buddies is just listen, just listen, just so I would say to you right now in the next two weeks. Call your black friend or find a black friend and say, hey, I'm hurting with you. Can you tell me how you're feeling? And don't identify with their story. You, you can read on Google how to do this. Don't identify with their story. Don't say, well, you know, when I was a kid, just listen, okay? So sorry about that. I just want to share that and, and I'll pop off. Well, thank you, Rusty. I, um, I lived in South Georgia. My dad's first church was in Cairo, Georgia. And um, his second church was in Randolph Clay, which is so big, so small, if you will, that one high school for two counties. And um, my, my brother went to middle school at what used to be the black high school. And when you live in communities that are not Atlanta, you get a very different sense of what goes on. And just listening is a beautiful way to say, you know, um, how can I better understand something that I didn't live? Um, that others have. So thanks for sharing that this morning. Um, I have a question for uh, Jimmy, if it's okay. Sure. So Jimmy, I, I know you were in Matter. I just have to ask, uh, did Michael Guido have any uh, influence on you while you were there? Do you know who he is? Yeah, yeah. Um, my, uh, uh, my boss, uh, we represented Guido and the seed from the sower. Um, and um, I would say that he didn't have a lot of influence. I listened to him because when I was in college, uh, he came on in Macon, Georgia, just before the television went off at like 1 a.m. or midnight or whatever it was. And there was, the, there was Michael Guido's, The Seed for the Garden of Your Heart, and then they played the national anthem and the television went to snow, you know, in those days. Uh, no 24-hour cable. Um, and so, um, uh, so I was familiar with him and then met him in, uh, a couple of times down there. Uh, really, the thing that happened is that my uh, 
my boss was more of an agnostic or maybe he was just a troublemaker. Um, but he would come in uh, with the Bible and would say, this is all messed up. He'd use a word other than messed. And he would say that, you know, this God tells these people to go kill all these other people. That can't be right. And he would just, you know, so I would have these discussions with him. And occasionally I would tell Guido when he um, would have uh, time to spend with him that he needs to talk to Ogden about such and such. But, um, but that, you know, n nothing specific other than that. Thanks. Yep. I went to Georgia Southern uh, when it turned into a university and uh, during that time in the late 80s, early 90s, and we would pop over to Metter, Metter where everything's better, and uh, go to Guido Gardens and spend time in the chapel, and it was, it was a great time. Mm -hmm. Well, Jimmy, would you mind closing us in prayer? Sure, be glad to. Thank you, sir. Um, guys, let me let me do this um, uh, before I start, if you don't mind. Um, so my mom uh, recently passed away, and uh, in her box that had all her instructions and so forth, and she had written this. I might get a little choked up about it. happy moments, praise God. Difficult moments, seek God. Quiet moments, worship God. Painful moments, trust God. Every moment, thank God. So uh, uh, with that kind of mantra um, and, and those instructions, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the time this morning. Um, um, I, uh, I lift up each of these men as they go into the marketplace, as they go about their day-to-day -day activities. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with us. Help us to be your men in the marketplace. Help us to uh, transact uh, on your behalf and show your love. Be your hands and your feet. Um, in this in this time in this age, uh, Lord, keep us mindful uh, as predominantly white privileged men um, that there are children of yours um, who have different experiences. There are children of yours who are hurting. There are children of yours who need help. Um, and uh, Lord, we ask for the opportunity to come alongside them and the wisdom, uh, the courage to come alongside them and the wisdom to do the right thing and to help edify them. Uh, uh, for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, men, for being here this morning and Jimmy for leading us today and um, go out into the world and um, be the children of God you were created to be.